0: held fast by love, held fast by the hand of a mighty person. That is what it means to be a Christian. And we just give God praise this morning that that describes us if we're believers here this morning. And my prayer always is that if you're a Christian here this morning, that you would leave strengthened and encouraged, uh, challenged, edified. If you're not a Christian, that you would leave very uncomfortable. Uncomfortable about your spiritual state and prompted to seek Christ, your only hope in life and death. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. That is where we are this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are in a series on Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, we have, as our vision statement, the very first pillar of that is building on exposition. So we take seriously the call to be in God's Word corporately. And this is one of the ways that shows itself, is we gather around God's Word and we go through it sequentially. And we've been in Romans now for a little over a year, and we are at coming to the end of Romans chapter 8, that very famous chapter in all of the Bible, But today we are in verses 26 to 30. Last week we ended on the note of hope. Hope, this is a word that gets thrown around pretty casually a lot uh, in our world. But for us, this is the certain hope that we as Christians have in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a certain hope and it is a realized hope that that cannot be taken away from us, not just something that, as uh, we talked about in our gospel community group this past week, this is not like we casually say, uh, man, I'm really hoping that works out. Uh, Typically, when we use that word hope in that way, it has a lot of question marks kind of couched in it. But this is a hope without question marks. In fact, it is a hope filled with exclamation points. It has no question marks hope in the New Testament can basically mean two things. First, it can refer to our own act of hoping. So we think of hope as looking forward to something or expecting something with confidence, a settled waiting, anticipation. This is the hope that we have within us. This is hope experientially understood, subjectively defined. This is what we experience like we experience faith or love. It is in us, it is within us, if we are in Christ. From last week, this is the Eager longing or waiting or groaning. This is what is conveyed by the idea of groaning. In our current state, we are longing for something and it is like a kind of groaning within us as we anticipate that thing happening. Much like was compared last week to the creation. Groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. So, uh, like, a, like a woman who is giving birth, looking forward earnestly to uh, labor being over. That is what it is like to be in this world as a Christian. That is our experiential hope. Or, secondly, it can refer to the thing itself that we hope for. So here, hope is understood as the object that is out there, the object that we are anticipating, what it is that we are looking forward to. So last week, we talked about our future hope. It's a thing. It's out there. Our future glory. So, two different aspects of hope. We need to kind of define those and see those as distinct. And yet, at the same time, we know that these two aspects of hope are blended together. The certainty of what we are looking forward to helps us look forward to it with certainty. Or we can say it this way, the certainty of the object is tied to the certainty that we experience as we move toward that object. If that is certain, then this can be certain. We know from what we've read in Romans up to this point that our experience of living the Christian life is not easy. You cannot read what we've read so far in Romans and come away thinking that the Christian life is easy peasy, that it's just something that you kind of glide through. And probably this is one of the great mistakes of the superficial devotional culture of contemporary evangelical Christianity, is it's just seen as this kind of a constant flow of pick-me-ups and highs. And then we read, and then we then we sing a song like It Is Well. And we realize that all that is just kind of garbage to be swept away. And then we sing, It is well with my soul. And we see the weightiness, the reality, the rawness of the Christian life. It is not easy, it is heavy. We have mortal bodies. We battle indwelling sin. We suffer with Christ, and this is what we've seen recently. We are on the path of the cross. We're on the path of the cross. You know, I heard a professor one time say uh, that wearing a, a, cross, neck, wearing a, a cross necklace, which, which there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think we all have, probably have jewelry with crosses on it. But it would be, it would be tantamount to wearing a, uh, if you were living in that day, wearing a a necklace with an electric chair on it or a gas chamber or something like that. It is a symbol of death. It is a symbol of execution. But it is the Christian symbol because we worship the crucified Christ, we hope in the crucified Christ, and we have been crucified with this Christ. To be a Christian is to be on a cross path with many splinters. We are following a crucified Savior. Let me just make this quick application from that. And it is this. Tell people the truth when you evangelize. When you share your faith, tell people the truth. Yes, tell them Jesus changed my life. And explain that. Tell them. Uh, of all the ways that the Holy Spirit has filled you with unspeakable joy. But tell them of the cross. Tell them of the cross that must be born. Tell them of the difficulties. Call them to count the cost. Luke chapter 14. Call them to understand that becoming a Christian is not accepting an easy path. Tell your children that and when you consider how you affirm them in their profession of faith, discern as you talk with them whether or not they have counted that cost in their little hearts, whether or not they have understood to some degree insofar as they are able that the Christian life is a cross path. The narrow way, as we see in Pilgrim's Progress, it involves many hardships. So that's the Christian life. What Paul wants to do, as we are in this patch of Romans chapter 8, what Paul wants to do is to strengthen our hope in the midst of this. In the midst of this experience of the Christian life, in the midst of suffering, he wants to settle our wobbling knees And trembling hands. And the way that Paul strengthens our experience of hope is by putting before us the certainty of our future hope. So you see how these two things are tied together. The way that Paul wants to grow and strengthen our internal experience of hope is to put before us in the clearest terms convincingly and powerfully our future hope, the object itself. It will happen. God will get us to that destination of glory with Christ. It's what we just sang a moment ago. He will hold me fast. Fast unto what? Fast to that. Fast to that goal. We can count on it. We can count on it in every way and with every breath we take. That is what Paul is about in Romans chapter 8. That's what's going on as we enter into these verses, this particular passage, verses 26 to 30. Strengthening hope by putting before us our infallible hope. So let me give you the title for the sermon this morning. It is Our Unfailing Hope. Part one. So we're just going to begin to look at verses 26 to 30. And if you've read these verses before, uh, or you, you've, you know them well, you understand why this needs to be two parts. Uh, you know, oftentimes it's challenging to determine how much text to take on in any one sermon. But given the, the nature of this passage and all of the questions that are raised, and I think questions that are settled by a passage like this, uh, it, it takes time. We need some time to dig into it. So today is just going to be our unfailing hope part one. And in this passage, Paul gives us three assurances. And you can see those up here on the screen. We'll look at the first two today and the third we'll look at next week, Lord willing. And so three assurances, first, the helper, second, the good, and three, the chain. These are, this is Paul's argument for why we should be full of robust hope. This is Paul's argument for the certainty of what lies out there so much so that we should be so enriched with hope now. Hope as we suffer, hope as we fight sin, hope as we endure persecution in whatever way it may come. All of these are assurances that we're going to make it to our future hope. Christian, you are going to make it. You're going to make it to your future hope. You know what this is for us? Let me just give you three things that this does for us practically, so relevant to our Christian lives, this right here, what we're doing, what we're looking at, these assurances, this objective hope, and the certainty that we ought to have, it gives us fuel for three important things in the Christian life. It gives us fuel for suffering. We don't know what lies around the corner. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow. We wake up every day and we, we just kind of expect it to be like the, the last day, generally, or on a tuesday we expect it to be like last tuesday i mean we just kind of we just kind of think in that way and then something just comes out of the blue we don't know what life is going to bring for us as we are gathered here this morning but whatever suffering is coming this gives us fuel to endure it it also gives us fuel for fighting this encourages us to fight sin. As we think about our future hope, as we're, as we're pulled forward towards heaven, towards the new heaven and the new earth, towards likeness with Christ, glorification, as we're pulled towards the celestial city, our future homeland, our real homeland, we're encouraged to forsake this world. We're encouraged to say, I'm not going to love the world or the things in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I'm not going to let those things entangle me because that's where I'm going. And thirdly, it gives us fuel for holiness. And that's basically the same point as I made just a moment ago. Fuel to live brightly for the glory of Christ in the world, And so this is uh, incredibly helpful as we come to a, a passage like this for how to live the Christian life well and for motivation for the Christian life. So you're here this morning, you're dry, you're cold, you're unmotivated, you're, you're like a placid pond. Be stirred up, be stirred up by this passage today. Go ahead and stand if you would for the reading of God's word. As we've done uh, up to this point, or tried to do at least, uh, we want to read all of Romans 8 up to this point, just so you're able to, from the apostle himself, get the context for the passage that we're going to study this morning. So we will read Romans 8, 1 to verse 30. Please follow, don't, don't check out. You know, it amazes me. I've seen this in my own life in the, in the past. You know, it's like you can, be, you can come to, ch- to church and hear a sermon and, and your mind just check out when something's being read. It's like you might check in when someone's speaking, but when the scriptures are being read, you just sort of just go off somewhere. Don't let that happen. Let's listen to God's perfect and profitable word. Romans 8, 1 to 30. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself Our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, this is our passage for today. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We love that verse too. You can go ahead and be seated. We love all these verses. These are precious to the Christian. Let's pray and ask that God would help us to understand his word and that the Spirit would apply it to our hearts in very, very specific, cutting ways to sanctify us this morning if we're believers and to 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 just radically rebirth us if we're not. If you're not a believer this morning, I'm praying that the Lord will just mercifully shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ on your heart, and that you will be utterly transformed by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we humbly bow before your throne. We seek help for this time of need. We thank you for time together as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, as we look at each other's faces, as I have the privilege of looking out at all of these faces, the faces of the people of God, faces that will be transformed and shine like the stars of heaven in the kingdom of you, our Father. God, we just Praise you for these realities that are so beyond our understanding, so beyond our ability to really take in and and yet at the same time, Lord, your spirit brings them in and consumes us with these truths, empowers us to live in accordance with these truths, to be filled up. With hope and joy, with all joy and peace in believing, righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for what it means to be a Christian. We thank you for the miracle that there are Christians, the miracle that it is that a single person born in Adam, a hater, of God, a lover of self, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, not doing good, not seeking God, not having the fear of God before our eyes. That such a one that even a single one would call you Abba from a heart of faith, hope, and love, God, what a mystery, what a miracle, far more magnificent than the creating of the sun and earth and even the angels. God, how amazing it is that you save sinners. What a miracle it is that there would be people here in this building this morning and to think that there are many Christians gathered across the world today who with circumcised hearts are praising you as their creator and redeemer. God, we are just in awe. We pray that we would never lose that awe and that that would help us this morning as we come to your word. May we sit under it. May we be changed by it. In Christ's holy name, amen. So the first assurance that Paul gives us as he puts before us our unfailing hope is The Helper, the Helper. Look with me at verses 26 to 27, chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep. For words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, sometimes we come across biblical passages that are loaded with mystery. There's mystery all over uh, the Bible, all over. But sometimes we come to passages that are just so full of mystery that is just spilling over, loaded to the, to the brim, so profound, so beyond our comprehension that we must simply worship. We just sort of stop. The response is purely doxological. Worship. Worshiping our God who is, as the end of Romans 11 will declare just absolutely beyond our comprehension, whose ways are beyond us. I think this is definitely one of those passages. These two verses, verses 26 to 27. So far, we've encountered a lot about the Spirit's work within us. And I think it's been very edifying. Personally, for me, as I shared at the beginning of the sermon last week, One of the things I like most or have liked most about this time spent in Romans is the clarity that the Lord has given me about the Christian life, about my Christian life. The clarity about who I am in Christ and what that's going to look like day in and day out. It's been the most illuminating for me. And and there, there are probably other things for you, but maybe it's the same. It's just been so helpful to see. I, I remember going through Genesis, the thing that struck me, two things that struck me most were Christ in Genesis and the faithfulness of God. Two things that just constantly pounded my heart as we were going through that book of the Bible. And here we see the work of the Spirit within us. And in fact, Romans 8 up to this point has been focused on the work of the Spirit. The Spirit appears 20-some times in Uh, Romans 8, just in this chapter alone, with uh, not nearly as many mentions in the seven chapters prior to that. He liberates, He indwells, He sanctifies, He is the means by which we kill sin and cry out to God as Father. He leads us through the Christian life and functions as a down payment or pledge of what's to come. He is the first fruits, He's the guarantee. He's the seal on our hearts. The king has taken his ring and he has stamped his seal on our hearts, letting us know that all that is promised will come to pass. Now, most of this work that we've seen so far about the Spirit is fairly straightforward. Now, don't let me say, don't hear me saying that it's it's simple. It is fairly straightforward, though profound. Certainly profound, But it is pretty straightforward what we have read so far about the Spirit's work. We know what it is like to fight sin. If you're a Christian, you you just get that immediately. You understand that. We know what it is like to fight sin and to experience a relationship with God as our Father. We experience these things as participants. We kill sin. Remember, we talked about that. The, The language is we do it. We kill sin. We're not passive. But we do it by the Spirit. We cry out, Abba, Father. But we do it by the Spirit. So the language up to this point has been fairly straightforward. But the language here, in verses 26 to 27, for the Spirit is a little different. Here we are told that the Spirit himself who dwells within us is actively involved in a ministry of intercession, interceding for us to the Father. Now let me just pause for a second. We know that the Son does this, right? This is is the activity of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. There's the Father, and and not understood as one being less than the other. They're all co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial. They share the same divine essence. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and we know that the Son, the Word, the eternal Word who became flesh, Jesus Christ, we know that He intercedes for us. We've, We've seen that before. You've encountered that before. Hebrews seven twenty five. he always lives to make intercession for us. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, or Romans eight thirty four, which we're coming to soon. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So this ministry of intercession, we associate with the exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father. We know that the Son of God is doing this work. He is sustaining us in our right standing before the face of God. But here, here we are told that the indwelling Spirit is also our intercessor. It's the only place we find it in the New Testament. The context is our weakness, and specifically, our weakness in knowing what to pray for. Now, we know this is a problem, but we don't have any idea how significant of a problem this is. We oftentimes think that we're just off a little. We sometimes hit the mark, and sometimes we're kind of off the mark a little, you know, kind of like aiming at a bullseye. Sometimes you hit the bullseye. Sometimes it's the next ring or the next ring or the next ring. Sometimes you hit the tree in the background or whatever else. Sometimes the gun or whatever doesn't even go off. Nowhere near the target. But the truth is that it's far worse than that. It's far, far worse than that. Our entire praying life is characterized and defined by weakness. Weakness. Limitation. We lack the ability to pray in accordance with God's will as we ought to. We don't see God's perfect will for our lives. We don't have the same sovereign eyes. Speak there. God doesn't really have eyes. He's incorporeal. He's spirit, as Jesus says in John 4. But his, his sight, his wisdom his perception of reality, we don't have that same perception. We are weak in this regard, and this means that the content of our prayers is always lacking. Every time, no matter how spiritual we think we might be at any given moment, no matter how truly filled with the Spirit at any moment we may be, our prayers are always lacking always. Let me give you an illustration of this from Paul's life. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. I think Paul illustrates this point there. And you've heard of this before if you've been in church for any time. This is the thorn in the flesh passage. Let me read it to you though rather than merely summarize it. So this is what Paul says. To keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he's the apostle carried up into heaven in some way, shape, or form, kind of like John in Revelation, and he sees things that no one else has seen. Revelations from God that are absolutely unique to Paul as an apostle to do his work of apostleship. So to keep me from being conceited, prideful, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Whatever it was, we're not gonna go there. There's pages and pages and pages of, of uh, commentary. If we were going through that passage, we would go there. But pages and pages of commentary written on what exactly is the thorn in the flesh. All we need to know at this point is there's something there, or someone there, that is such a burden. To Paul that it has the effect of keeping him from being conceited his his head would have become massive and he would have floated up into space with pride had he not had this thing and he had this thing from the sovereignty of God by means of a messenger of Satan who's in charge God not the devil the devil's like a little lapdog carrying out God's purposes. Three times, I go on, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, please take this away. Please take this person away, this ailment away, this circumstance away, whatever it is that was the thorn in Paul's flesh. Please, please, please take it away. Does that sound familiar? We've, we've been there. Please take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God said no. No. Therefore, I will boast. This is Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the Christian worldview. Paul's pleading, here's my point in bringing that illustration in, Paul's pleading was not in accordance with God's will. When Paul said, please take this thorn away from me, it was not in accordance with God's will. Paul wasn't sinning per se to ask God to do that. It wasn't sinful for him to ask God to do that. It's not sinful for you to ask God to heal your mother from cancer or to take away some very stressful situation in your life. It's not sinful to do that. But it wasn't God's will to do it. It was not in accordance with God's will. Even for the apostle, the affliction needed to stay to protect Paul from conceit the affliction needed to stay in Paul's life to bring Paul to his destination so what are we to do about these lacking prayers what was Paul to do about these lacking prayers what is any Christian who's not an apostle so if that way for Paul certainly for us what are we to do with all this lack and this failure in prayer lack and failure and ignorance in prayer oh my what are we to do To some degree, all our praying is fraught with weakness. All of our praying, fraught with weakness. Well, in one sense, the answer to that question is we don't do anything. We don't, what are we to do? Our prayers are lacking, our prayers are weak. We fail in prayer. We don't know, God, we don't do anything. In one sense, we do. Nothing. Of course, we are to seek the will of God and to try to pray in accordance with it. But that's not the solution. The solution to the problem of weakness is already taken care of by God. It's not, oh, 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 we just gotta do better, do better, find the way. Of course, we are constantly seeking the will of God and trying to discern. Romans 12 starts out that way, being renewed in the spirit of our minds, being renewed so that we'll be able to discern the will of God. But the ultimate solution is not for us to come up with. God has already done it. That's what these verses are about. His Spirit lives inside of us, and He communicates on our behalf with the Father. Listen to this. The Spirit in us communicates on our behalf with the Father to ensure that God's will is done in our lives. Now, we just got to pause there. That is absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Our failing prayers are overcome already and inevitably. Our failing prayers are overcome by this work of the Spirit. How encouraging this is to us to live the Christian life and not to be so overcome by our own failures in prayer, our own failures to see God's will. God's got it. He's already taken care of it. By means of the indwelling spirit. But how does this happen? How does this take place? And it involves three things. You can write these down if you wish to. Three things that this involves. The how. So first, there is the manner of communication. It is here described as speechless or wordless unspoken groanings from the Spirit directed to the Father. Now some in the charismatic community have argued that this is some sort of speaking in tongues. So probably if you have, maybe, maybe you're raised in a charismatic church or if you have read uh, commentators who are charismatic from Pentecostal denomination or others, they may Use this verse or cite this verse as, as a reference to speaking in tongues, some sort of angelic language as they interpret 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which I don't think that's the way to interpret those those chapters in 1 Corinthians, but that's that's another discussion. But some who have understood that to be some sort of angelic prayer language have, have equated that with what we find here in Romans 8. But it cannot be that for two major reasons. So I'm not going to belabor this point. But I think there are two convincing reasons why what's going on here cannot be the the speaking in tongues as it's understood by some. Number one, it's not verbalized. Too deep for words literally means wordless or without speech. The adjective means literally wordless without speech, unspoken. That's the word that Paul uses here to describe that. It's rendered in the ESV too deep for words. And number two, that's the first reason, and that's less significant even than the second reason, and the second reason that this passage should not be used Uh, in that way, should not be interpreted in that way, is that this is the experience of all Christians. Notice that Romans 8, Paul is describing all Christians who have the Spirit of Christ in them, who are led by the Spirit, who cry out, Abba, Father. So whatever Paul is saying here, it applies to every single Christian. And whatever we are to make of speaking in tongues in the period of the New Testament Paul asks rhetorically, expecting a negative answer, this in 1 Corinthians 12.30. Do all speak in tongues? No. So whatever we are to make, here's my point, whatever we are to make of the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, which is described in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, whatever we are to make of that, as it was practiced in Paul's day, in the New Testament period, whatever we are to make of that, What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 makes clear that it's not something every Christian does. But what we're reading about here in Romans 8, 26 to 27, is something that happens inside of every Christian. Therefore, this can't be that, if that makes sense. So it's speechless, wordless, unspoken groanings. Another way that this happens, secondly, is that it involves a perfect relationship between the Father and the Spirit. This is really beautiful for understanding the Trinity. Verse 27 explains that the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. Look at the language. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes perfectly in line with the Father's will. This is a beautiful, harmonious, Perfect relationship within the Godhead. That's a weird way to put it. I've always thought that strange, the Godhead. But that's older translations, I put it that way. Within the divine nature, within the essence of God, within God, the triune God, three persons, one God, the Father perfectly knows the mind of the Spirit and the Spirit perfectly speaks to the Father in accordance with His will. Verse 27 explains this for us. And by the way, let me just say this. Notice to what extent the Spirit is personalized. If you ever had any questions about the Spirit being some sort of force or some sort of thing that's poured out into us, it's just an emanation or some sort of powerful emanation like a sunbeam or something of that sort that's in us or a mist or something. If you ever had that kind of idea, this should shatter that because clearly here, we're talking about a person with a mind. Look at the language. The mind of the Spirit. This is a person. The Spirit is a person. So what's the result? These prayers, here's the, here's the glorious result. These prayers are always offered in accordance with God's will. Our prayers, no, no, broken, failing, lacking, these prayers by the Spirit who dwells within us, these prayers are always offered perfectly, 100% in line with the will of the Father, and they are always heard and answered with a yes. Wouldn't it be amazing if every time we prayed, I can remember sitting in children's church as a kid and just trying to wrap my head around this idea, you know, we pray and God says, yes, no, or not yet, or not now, or maybe, or something like that. I forget the way it was put to me. Uh, yes, we understand that dynamic. To, to think that we, every time we prayed, exactly what we asked for in exactly the time, in exactly the way, would boom, instantly happen. That's the way it is for the Spirit who prays intercedingly within us to the Father. So that's the that's second aspect of this, the how. There's the manner of communication, and then there's the perfect relationship, and then finally, it happens in our hearts. This is where it takes place. Notice what verse 27 says. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. It's the Father searching out the mind of the Spirit who is himself within our hearts. The Spirit is in our hearts. The Father searches within our very own hearts and hears the mind of the Spirit interceding on our behalf. All of this takes place within us. All of this is taking place within you right now, Christian. That's amazing. There's nothing boring about the Christian life at all. talking about things that angels desired to look into. This has to be one of them. Commentators have debated to what extent we are cognizant of this ongoing communication. That's something if you read commentators on this passage, they debate, you know, do we, do we experience this? Or are, we, are we kind of blended in with this? Do we participate in this? Or does this happen apart from us? Is it like the Abba Father call where our hearts are wrapped up in the communication so that we cry by the Spirit, but in Galatians it says that the Spirit cries. Is it us? Is the Spirit working together there crying out? Is it like that? Or does it happen like the Son's intercession, totally apart from us, apart from our awareness? We have no awareness of the Son interceding for us at the Father's right hand. We are not cognizant in any way, shape, or form of what Christ is doing right now on our behalf. We're not aware of it, it's happening. We trust it, we're told it's happening, but we can't, we're not experiencing that happening. Paul doesn't really answer that question for us. I don't think Paul really gives us, he, you know, we, also, we oftentimes have, have questions that God has no interest in answering. You know, we think all our questions deserve an answer. Sometimes, We have questions that are the wrong questions. Or we have questions that God just does not answer for us. And there's no clear answer here as Paul describes it as to, to what extent we experience this. We do experience the work of the Spirit as we commune with God. So is that wrapped up in this? It's unclear. But here's what we need to know. What we need to know is that it's happening. That's my point. Is that it is happening. And it happens for a purpose. And that brings us to our second point, which will be our final point for this morning. As we think about the assurances that Paul gives us, we come now to the good. And there is that wonderful verse that many of us know by heart, Romans eight twenty eight. Look with me there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I think we would all agree that this verse is very much a coffee cup worthy verse. If there is a verse uh, that is you know I pick on some of those verses and not the verses but the fact plucking those verses out and putting it up but if there if there are verses that deserve to be on a coffee cup that can be put up by themselves and and just stand. Just stand with sturdy legs like Behemoth in Job. This verse can. It works well as a slogan in its own right. And yes, it does seem to function as a maxim for the Christian life. The words all things appear to be all-encompassing. Some have tried to limit those words to sufferings uh, and, and not other things because suffering is in the context. You go back, you know, to verse 17. But it appears here in Paul's language that all things means all things. It's, it's all-encompassing. Of course, in the context, suffering and sin-killing and carry around our mortal bodies should apply. But isn't that all of the Christian life? Isn't anything that we would experience in the Christian life folded into our suffering with Christ, our killing sin, and our carrying around our mortal bodies? So in a sense, there's nothing that would be uh, out from under this wonderful banner of truth. All things we experience. So let me summarize what Paul is saying here. All the experiences of your life As one who loves God and has been called, called to be a Christian, effectually called to be a Christian, all things, all experiences, both positive and negative, both delightful and painful, both light and heavy, all of them get turned like arrows towards one single target. That's the power of God. One single target. And that target is your good. So imagine that target again. Everything. Everything in your life. And here's the thing. If you're guilt ridden, you're carrying around guilt this morning, everything in your past. Everything that's weighing you down and making you feel that constant sense of guilt. Know this. Be encouraged by this. Be strengthened by this. That everything you are doing right now, everything that you're experiencing right now, everything that's going on in your life right now, everything you will experience and have experienced is being turned and will be turned inevitably and surely as an arrow and it will stick right in the bullseye of the target of your good. You know, this has a profound effect on the Christian life. It liberates us from worry to live before the face of God moment by moment. It consoles us in grief when we cry out capital W, capital H, capital Y, 100 exclamation points. When we do that in life, we are consoled by this glorious truth. And it encourages us when we fail. And we fail often. But now, I want to zoom out and look at this verse in context because yes, it is quite sturdy on its own, but it is so much more beautiful in context. It is so much more sturdy or sturdier, so much more beautiful in this context. It's so much fun to study biblical verses like this in their context because the meaning just comes alive for us. We, we knew it generally before when we memorized it in isolation. But, but then we see it in context, we study it in context, and then we come to understand it specifically. We, we come to understand it precisely. We come to understand it exactly. And it just flowers up with meaning. I think that's what happens when we take this verse in Its context. So let's look as we finish up this morning, let's look at the before and after. The before context and the after context. So first, the before. When we read these words in the context of verses 26 to 27, we see how God works everything for our good. We see how we see how God does that. See, we read chapter 8, verse 28, and, and we say, yes, God does it. We get the what. God does this, works everything out for my good. But when we read it after verses 26 to 27, we see how God does that. And here it is. It is by means of this intercession of the Spirit in accordance with the will of God, this mysterious intertrinitarian communication. It is by this means that God's will is being carried out, that our good is being accomplished. It is by means of this mysterious, incomprehensible work of the Spirit that you may not even be cognizant of. You ask, How? How does God do it? And here's the amazing thing probably up to this point, you've thought about God doing it from the outside, He's the orchestrator. He's the sovereign providential ruler over all. And that's absolutely true. But I hope now you will see it more intimately that God brings about your good from within you by his very own spirit. You cannot take verse 28 out of the context of verses 26 to 27. So I'm betting that many of us have, have not made this connection before, that we've never seen this connection with verses 26 to 27. So just let that settle. Meditate on that. Take heart in that. Go study that. But it's amazing to think that this thing going on within us between the Spirit and the Father— That we may or may not, or to whatever degree, be cognizant of happens in order that we might be sustained toward the good. That's amazing. What certainty this gives us, what assurance this gives us that He will hold us fast. There is a mechanism, and it is entirely apart from us. I wanna say that again. You know, you're striving this morning, and we ought to strive. We ought to make every effort. We ought to fight and kill sin in the strength of the Lord. We ought to be trying, right? I don't know, this whole idea of, you know, stop trying. No, we ought to be trying as we are fighting and striving and growing and doing and disciplining our bodies. All this language is important to the Christian life. But at the end of the day, the reason that we make it to, to the target is because of what the Spirit's doing as He talks with the Father. That's sheer grace. That is sheer grace. When you get there, God will make absolutely clear to you that that's all it was. And that's why, you, why you'll be praising Him for eternity. Second, the after, as we close this morning. And in order to see this after context, we need to read verse 28 together with verse 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's what I want you to see. The good that God is working towards in our lives is both certain and specific. It is certain because we are called according to his purpose. Notice that. There's a purpose unfolding that ensures our good. So think about it this way. There's a communication going on that ensures our good. But there's also a purpose going on that ensures our good. And here's the wonderful thing. This purpose predates all the experiences that could be for our bad. God purposed before he made the world that he would carry you home by means of all the things in your life that by means of all the things in your life providentially positive and negative light and heavy and so forth that all the things in your life God before those things happened he determined to use those things so that you would hit the mark so that you would find your future glory so that you would come to that point we see this in 2 Timothy 1:9 Who saved us, talking about Christ, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ, here it is, before the ages began. God did this before the world began. So it's almost like all the bad things that we experience in this life that we think aren't for our good, they're overshadowed by what comes before. They're being pushed along by what comes before preordaining of God to bring you home in Christ. So it is certain but finally I want you to see that it is specific. Verse 29 gives us the definition of this good. What is this good? What is this good? Health, wealth and happiness and cheer? No. No. It's right here. Verse 29. Ultimate conformity to Christ. Now we know this is happening throughout our lives. 2 Corinthians talks about us being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Our Christ-likeness. But you know what? It's interesting. When we talk about Christ-likeness, we're oftentimes talking about being conformed to Christ in this life. But the one verse that stands out the most, this verse, about being like Christ, isn't referring to that. It's not referring to us being conformed to Christ in this life. We know that's happening. But it's referring to our being conformed to Christ in the life to come. That is Paul's emphasis, Philippians 3:21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So here's my point as we close. When we read Romans 8:28, we should not think so much in terms of this life. Think about that. Let that sit. We read Romans 8:28, in all our little circumstances, and so God's going to work all this out. I'm going I'm I'm to be happy at the end of the day. Maybe not. Maybe not. We know God's providential. He's loving. He, he works in our lives in all kinds of ways that bring us happiness and, and, and delight in life and cheer and all those things that we, that we absolutely uh, uh, thank him for. But God doesn't promise to turn every little thing in our lives to some kind of realized good in this life. We know that because one of these days you're going to die. And that's not a good. So it's, you got to pass through that bad to get to this good. We know that it's all going to end in death. you got to die at some point. Every, we, we pray to God to heal us, but at some point we're not going to be healed because we're going to die. Everybody is going to die. We're looking to some sort of earthly prosperity or satisfaction of the good when Romans 8, 28 in context tells us that's not what we should be after. God's going to work it out in the end. We know that God works it out in this life and conforms us to Christ and often turns our lives towards good realized. But the focus of this verse is our future glory. Things may not get resolved in this life. Let me say this to you, Christian, to encourage you, not to make you feel defeated. We might not see our good emerge. Think about that. Romans 8, 28, on the coffee cup, can't be used for that. You may not see your good, as you think it, emerge in this life. But take heart, Christian, it is coming. And one day, it will be all Good. Everything, all your sufferings and all your failures will be shown to be means of perseverance unto the goal which is your glorification with Christ for eternity. That's what Paul's saying in these verses as we think about our good and our hope. Next week, we'll come to the final aspect here, and that is the chain, as we look at verses 29 and 30 together. Let's go ahead and pray, talk to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have shown us this morning from it. We ask that you would continue to grow us, Lord, in our knowledge of your workings in our lives. We thank you for the Spirit, who is far more active than we probably thought before we came to these verses Uh, he he's constantly working ways we see and experience in ways we don't see Lord and that just encourages us that when we feel unspiritual or dry or cold or just just not motivated Lord that that you're still working your spirit is still interceding and Christ is interceding God you are going to bring us home we praise you for that We thank you for the Lord's Supper. As we come to it now, we pray that we would just take delight that all of this flows out of the finished work of Christ as he poured out his blood for sinners. We take the bread and the cup, remembering what our Savior did to bring us into the new covenant to make us those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. We thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.